Hi everyone, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VG Oncology. Today, we're delighted to introduce an esteemed panel of experts to discuss the latest in skin cancer presented at the ASCO 2021 annual meeting. In this podcast, we have James Larkin from the Royal Marston Hospital in London, UK, who is chairing this session, and he'll be joined by Radabe Imaria from the MD Anderson Cancer Centre in Houston, Texas, Anna Aranche from the Hospital Clinic de Barcelona in Spain, and Paola Asciate from the National Tumor Institute in Milan, Italy. The panel are going to discuss adjuvant and new adjuvant therapy, updates from the long-term follow-up studies in metastatic melanoma, including Checkmate 067 and Columbus, results from Keynote 054 and Relativity 047 in the frontline metastatic setting, as well as the Levantinib data from the LEAP 004 in anti-PD-1 refractory disease. And now, pass you over to the experts for today's skin cancer session with BJ Oncology. Hi everybody and welcome to this post-ASCO Skin Cancer Roundtable discussion with VJ Oncology. My name is James Larkin. I'm a medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden in London in the UK. We've identified a few different areas uh, to talk about uh, based on the exciting data we've seen recently at ASCO. Uh, and those are adjuvant and neoadjuvant, uh, metastatic, uh, long-term follow-up, frontline metastatic, uh, the very important PD-1 refractory space, and then potentially if there's time, um, other highlights uh, that we think we might be of interest. And as well as uh, talking about ASCO, we'll be trying to incorporate the other recent data that we've seen published and presented in the literature in the last six to 12 months. So it is my great pleasure, I should say, to be joined today by esteemed colleagues from uh, around the world. You really need uh, no introduction, but nevertheless, I will make uh, some introductions. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Arance from uh, Spain. Dr. Asciato. Hi, Anna. Uh, Dr. Asciato uh, from Italy. Hello, James. Hi. Uh, and we have Dr. Amaria joining us from uh, the US. Hello. Good morning or evening. Yeah, early afternoon in London. Uh, anyway, so welcome everybody. Look forward to a great discussion. And I think what I'd like to do, if I may, um, Dr. Amari, is actually start with you uh, in terms of adjuvant and neoadjuvant. I mean, there seems to be quite a lot happening in this space at the moment. And we've seen some really interesting data at ASCO and actually in the last six to 12 months, we've, we, we've seen some other important data. So um, perhaps I, I could ask you to, to start by kind of giving us your take really overall and how the new data kind of fits into what we should be thinking about in clinic. Sure. So one of the major adjuvant updates from um, ASCO uh, was the S1404 study, which was basically the randomized study of PEMBRO versus um, standard of care, which could have included high-dose IPI or, or interferon in the study. And what you see here is that the PEMBRO outperforms the standard of care, um, as we would expect. But there was no, in terms of progression-free survival, but there was no overall survival benefit seen. And actually, this data is very complementary to the Checkmate 238, the curves basically overlap, and, and similar studies, you know, you, you, findings. You basically see improvement in progression-free survival, but no change in overall survival, and that is undoubtedly due to crossover to the, you know, other lines of therapy uh, once patients progress. Um, and, and, and really no other differences with safety signals with this study. I think this really just highlights what we already knew uh, from the Checkmate 238 study. I do think that there's been a lot of, you know, as you alluded to, a lot of updates in adjuvant therapy. We clearly have the both adjuvant TD1 regimens um, showing uh, RFS benefits. We have high-dose IPI, which, you know, is not necessarily widely used anymore due to the toxicity. We have very clear data with the COMBI-AD study with the dibrafenib tremetinib over placebo showing both RFS benefits as well as overall survival benefits. But the other thing to, to remember, of course, is the Checkmate 915 study, which was presented at um, uh, AACR this year. And uh, that study did not meet its primary endpoint. IPI and NEVO was not necessarily better than NEVO um, for the uh, entire intent to trait population or the PDL1 positives. And I think we should discuss this, but I think there's a number of reasons why. And I really just think it's the way that they did the dosing of the IPI. You know, the low dose every six weeks is not something 
something we traditionally use in, in melanoma, and I think that's what led to, to the, the findings in that study. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great summary to start us off with. So maybe I'll just ask a few questions and see what people think. I mean, not many of the modern or more modern trials have shown an OS benefit um, for adjuvant therapy. And do we think that's because, as you say, um, the patients are actually this crossover in the metastatic setting and that's the reason for it. But if it weren't for that, actually, we would be looking at an OS benefit. And it's a complicated question, of course, but, you know, sometimes particularly with regulatory approvals and sometimes with reimbursement, we have these kinds of problems with adjuvant treatment. People say, well, actually, great, we see an RFS benefit. That's clear. Why isn't there an OS benefit? And that might mean that it's more difficult to reimburse. So what about a Spanish or Italian perspective? I'd be curious. I agree with you, uh, James. So... We can assume that probably the subsequent treatments have an effect on overall survival, but I'm not sure if this is all the, the this is due to all subsequent treatments. Are we compromising, you know, uh, the treatment in the metastatic setting? Do we have to analyze the data in a different way, uh, checking for uh, progression-free survival uh, following this first uh, progression? So just to be able to measure the the benefit. So I don't have a clear uh, explanation because in the metastatic setting, we have been able to show uh, a survival benefit even with subsequent therapies. So why cannot demonstrate that in the adjuvant setting? Do we have to analyze the data in a different matter? You know, stop at the time of progression and then check overall survival or PFS2 from there. So. I don't know. And the most important question, are we compromising, you know, treatment in the, in the metastatic setting? Now we have many, many patients progressing on adjuvant uh, immunotherapy and also in adjuvant targeted therapy. And this is really a clinical problem that maybe we can deal later on with the other results from, the, from ASCO. So how do we treat these patients now? So I don't have a, a straight answer. I have more questions that I that would like to share with all of you. Yeah, I think it's the same for all of us. Paolo, how about you? What do you think about this no, I, thorny question? I, I, I agree that uh, the post-progression treatments, uh, it's something that uh, affect the overall survival. Uh, but, you know, the RTC trial with the EP was a positive trial. We have seen relapsed free survival advantage and then overall survival. Yes, it's true that at that time we had uh, probably limited option in post-progression, but this is, a, of course, an interesting trial. And we should take in mind that uh, uh, in the Checkmate 238 and in the SWOP 1404, the control arm was an active control arm. So I believe that uh, the crucial trial will be the KNOT 054, because uh, in that trial, there is also the possibility to, to, to get a crossover in the placebo R. Um, we really will see if uh, this crossover will affect overall survival, and then the question if we need to treat uh, patients uh, earlier or later uh, will be an interesting question. But, uh, I agree with Anna that at the end of the day, with all the treatment uh, available, uh, we should look probably to other uh, uh, endpoints, maybe even the distant metastasis for survival, so something different. Yeah, that's a beautiful segue, Paolo, thank you, um, into the Keynote 54. I think there's probably a good chance to talk about it now, the kind of Lex Egamont now or later strategy. And, and we saw some data, obviously, um, at ASCO this year. What, what do people think about those data? Small numbers, a bit too early. Um, any thoughts from anybody on, on how we should interpret that? I mean, I think, you know, I think the data, to me, I was most intrigued by the crossover data, right? Obviously, there were small numbers of patients, but what I was disconcerted uh, to see was the one out of nine patients basically with measurable metastatic disease when they were re-challenged with Pembro had a response. That, that's definitely different than what we've seen in some of the other, um, you know, crossover data that's been presented. And so to me, it's very unclear. And 
I think clinically, I, I'm not seeing as good results with rechallenge. Um, uh, but but again, I think this is an area that that needs further study in bigger patient numbers. And just to be clear on that point, we're talking about rechallenge in the metastatic setting with single yeah. agent anti PD one in someone who's previously fat. Yeah, and I mean certainly that's my experience, and I think most of the data points us in that direction as well. So Paolo and Anna, Keynote 54 at ASCO, uh, is, is that helping us or is, uh, is it still pretty unclear? Well, for, me it's, first. It's <laughs> for me, it's, un it's unclear. First, because we don't have all the data. Probably th there must have been patients who have been treated outside Keynote uh, 054 with uh, anti-PD-1 alone or in combination. So it would be interesting if you know the ERTC could you know, collect all this, all this information. And also in the placebo arm, it's curious to me that these patients that receive placebo and then when they have been uh, treated with uh, Pembro, with anti-PD-1, the PFS is similar. It's, it, it, it does not look like in the uh, treatment arm. Uh, you know, it's much lower. So if at three years, I don't remember the exact numbers with Pembro, the last free survival is around 60% in the control arm, the placebo arm for patients who were treated with Pembro on, on, on relapse is like around 30%. So why? So that it means to me that it's not very convenient to delay treatment, but uh, you know, it's, it's the same. I don't think we don't, we don't have the full picture with, with all the patients, you know, many a, few, a group of patients have been treated without, within Keynote 054, but what happened with the patient who received anti-PD-1 probably or other uh, outside uh, uh, the trial? So this is uh, one of the comments that yeah. I may have, but yeah. I don't know the right answer. No, I mean, I think that's a good point though, actually. Uh, Paolo, how about you? No, James, uh, uh, I, I believe that uh, we have seen interesting data, but that's it, stop. So. We need, of course, more interesting data. We are waiting for overall survival. Probably we will need also to see the five years relapse free survival. These are some, something like an interim analysis. Yes, with interesting data, but nothing more. Okay, so listen, I've got two more things I want to talk about before we go on to neoadjuvant. So the first question is uh, for all of you, why was Checkmate 915 negative? Um, uh, we've already had an allusion to that. Uh, and of course, we're speculating, we don't have a manuscript and so on and so forth. But I mean, frankly, it was disappointing, right, for all of us in the field to see the curve so clearly overlapping. Is it ipi dosage? Is it less treatment? Is it more steroids? What do people think? You know, there's no right answer, right? <laughs> so, you, you know, James, uh, we, we did an interesting trial in uh, metastatic melanoma with ipi 10 compared to ipi 3 mix per kicks. And in melanoma, we now know it's really clear that the dosage may make a difference. And that's Rhoda said, so that's it. So epidose for you, Paolo. But looking also the, the MUNED study, the German study, uh, you know, we have seen a very interesting uh, separation. Yes, it's a phase two randomized trial, small number of patients, but that ratio was really low and uh, with uh, an important difference. So, yes, in my opinion, is uh, the EP dosage because, you know, the EP dosage and the schedule, this is the schedule that we use for the lung cancer. So we cannot use the same schedule for the different cancer. We know that in melanoma, the dosage makes a difference. Yeah, and we could actually spend the whole time talking about EP dosage, couldn't we, if we wanted to, but we're not going to. Uh, Anna, any other comments uh, already from uh, you on this? We have, we don't, we have to remember that this, I had three arms, one arm with uh, EP monotherapy, and once the results of the 238, you know, Checkmate 238 were uh, made uh, public, you know, patients who were in the EPR were allowed to receive anti-PD-1. So I don't know exactly if this is going to be discussed in, in, in a future publication or if it was discussed in the presentation. I don't know if these patients, you know, that have they been analyzed? Have they been included in the... Pembro, I'm sorry, in the anti-PD-1 uh, group, because there was this third R with EP, and patients were, you know, were allowed, because I remember participated in this trial, and we added uh, a NIVO anti-PD-1 to these patients once the 
you know, the data from Checkmate 238, where I don't know if that also has had an influence on the data apart from the dosage that I agree with Paolo that may have influenced a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, isn't it? I mean, I think it was a small number of patients, wasn't it, who got IP10 mono before the trial design was amended, but um, it's, it's an important uh, point. Um, right, so if there's nothing else on that, I'm gonna ask a final adjuvant question, which is, uh, will we see a positive signal in high-risk stage two for adjuvant checkpoint inhibitor therapy? Again, there's no right answer. I think we will. Um, I mean, I think that the studies were, it's just going to take a while, right? So, I mean, I, I think the studies were, were smart and that they picked the highest group of, of, of patients, that, you know, 2B, 2C patients. We know those 2C patients can have as, as high relapse rates as, as 3A patients, right? So, in trials that allow 3As, you should honestly uh, allow the 2Cs as well. So, uh, I, I, I think... I think there will be a, a positive signal. I think it's just obviously going to take time for relapse events. Yeah. How are you voting, Anna and Paolo, on this question? So, uh, James, you remember the brim mate. In the brim mate, we had a court with the 2C, with the vemurafenib single agent that was positive in that court. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I believe it's, if I should bet, uh, I, I will bet on the uh, positive uh, uh, results with the uh, checkpoint inhibitor in the 2B. The 2B, it's a little bit tricky uh, compared to 2C, but looking the data from the premate, uh, I'm positive. Yeah, you know, and I always mention exactly the same thing, Paolo, that whole, you know, maybe the arguably the most interesting part of premate, but I probably shouldn't say that. Right, Anna, Anna what do you think? Well, I don't have much uh, to say. I agree with uh, all of you. So let's see. Uh, let's it, might see be, it might not be that long, but we'll see. Okay, yes, very, yes. very good. Very good. So, uh, Neil Adjuman, um, Rhoda, I'm going to go back to you now. Actually, this is a, a major area of interest for you and uh, of expertise as well. So um, let, let's move to Neil Adjuman. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So, I mean, you know, we've we've come a long way in neoadjuvant. Obviously, neoadjuvant immunotherapy is really a, a an active area of interest. I think the data from the Opus and Neo study is really the the new standard of care with the IPI one mg per kg, Nevo three mg per kg. That that is, you know, two doses prior to surgery and then no mandatory adjuvant phase. That's really where we are um, in in neoadjuvant therapy and melanoma. And so, the the study that we conducted at MD Anderson using the volumab with uh, anti-lag-3 antibody relatlimab, you know, the idea was to see if we could find a regimen with similar efficacy, but perhaps a lower um, side effect profile. Um, and so we gave, um, you know, these two doses in the neoadjuvant setting. Um, and, and to me, I think we had very comparable efficacy data. Um, I think we had something like, you know, overall response rate 57%, past CR rate, uh, I think 59%, um, a, a good number of, of uh, major past pathologic responses as well. So to me, the clinical data looks very similar. Um, and obviously, the patients that are having the major pathologic responses, you know, um, and um, past CRs are not having relapse events, as we'd seen in other neoadjuvant studies. But I think the, the highlight was that this was a much easier study for me to manage personally, having done an IPI-NEVO uh, neoadjuvant study and having to deal with a lot of toxicities. Really, the toxicity rate was pretty minimal in the neoadjuvant. And when we started to have toxicity as it was more in the adjuvant setting because we traditionally have neoadjuvant and adjuvant um, phases to our trials. So with repeated doses, um, we're, we're having more toxicities. But again, this was happening six months into adjuvant therapy. Um, so neoadjuvant-wise, I think it's a really well-tolerated regimen with, with very similar results as we saw in the Opus and um, Neo studies. Yeah, uh, and do you think that might be a regimen that we're sort of moving towards, you know, um, in the in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant settings? And what about randomized trials comparing one with the other? What about that question for, let's say, people who are a bit more conservative about this? Um, you know, I, I think in general, as, as we're going to talk about the relativity study, I think this is really potentially a paradigm shift. I, I feel like, um, you know, with the toxicity not being high with this combination regimen, it opens up use of this in various phases, whether it's neoadjuvant, adjuvant, and metastatic. So I think we're just going to see more and more uh, data with this, this combination coming out in future. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much for those insights. Right. Um, Anna and Paolo, what's your take on neoadjuvant 
Is it standard of care already? Have we seen enough data? Um, you know, all sorts of things we can ask about. Well, I think it's a very interesting approach to explore in, in, in melanoma. It's different from other tumor types. I am one of the ones that is for, you know, randomized studies to compare adjuvant versus neoadjuvant. I don't think it's a standard. I think this study, you know, this neoadjuvant strategy needs to be planned or given within the context of a, of, of a, of a clinical trial. And I think it's a very interesting uh, pathway or, you know, a type of trial to, uh, to follow. But I have a question for, for, for Roda that many times has asked myself because in my environment, let's say like this, we don't have that many patients that are going to be candidates for a neoadjuvant strategy, looking at uh, you know, clinically palpable nodal uh, disease or radiologically uh, evident uh, nodal disease. Which one is the percentage of patients that have been included, for example, in, in, your, in the study of Nibo Plus, uh, the anti-LAC3, that were like first diagnosis was with a, this clinically uh, detectable uh, nodal disease? Have, have you have a look at that? Or how many patients were relapses, recurrences following, you know, an initial diagnosis? Yeah, most of these patients are de novo clinical stage three disease. And I would estimate that that's probably 10 to 15 percent of patients that we see at MD Anderson um, come in this way um, with, with maybe it's different in different areas, but this is the, the population. So it is limited. These are a small number of patients, but obviously having a bigger group of patients that come into your institution, it makes it possible to find these patients. Okay, that was my impression that de novo and nodal disease, it was like a that maximum 15, maximum, maximum at 20% of the patient, but this is going, going high. At, we are usually more used to this, maybe a 10% of the patients, a 15% of the patients are de novo cases. It's because- you know, The other patients, thing that I think we'll see more and more of is as we're using more and more adjuvant therapy and we're having in field nodal recurrences because people are not having completion nodal dissections, this is bringing in a new population of patients that I think would be eligible for neoadjuvant trials, even though they've had prior adjuvant therapy. Yes, I do agree. And maybe, do we know if the biology or the, of these tumors, the novo and the ones that they are relapses, recurrences, it's something interesting. I don't know. Is the same biology? Is the same? Uh... No, it's not. I, and and I, I will, I will say that I have had a couple of, of patients. We allowed a couple patients on this trial that had had, say, prior BRAF MAC and and Progress. They did terribly, right? So they they didn't do well. Um, so it, you know, it's it's um, the biology is absolutely different with these patients uh, that had had a prior adjuvant therapy and Progress than than obviously the de novo patients. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it speaks to the importance, actually, of the neoadjuvant setting that we've got these refractory patients, massive unmet need, and actually you can do small studies, you know, translationally and so on and so forth, which may really give us a lot of insights, I think. Paolo, uh, what's your take on neoadjuvant? A, a, couple, a couple of uh, short comments. The first uh, uh, neoadjuvant moment uh, may not be considered uh, uh, something uh, light in a standard of care, uh, we need a clinical trial very soon. We will have a phase three, the Nadina trial that Christian Blanc is designed. It should start uh, uh, very soon uh, with uh, the comparison with the neoadjuvant and the adjuvant. But there is also another important comment uh, about research because uh, the neoadjuvant study are window of opportunity study. So this it's uh, something important in development. So the data that Roda showed about this combination it's a clear example about the power of the new combination that we can uh, check with pathological complete response. Yes, it's a small cohort of patients. Probably we need also to know the lag three positive. Uh, maybe that uh, there was a comment about the median sites, uh, but surely if uh, will not be the sixty six percent of major pathological response, maybe fifty. So. Surely this is a very interesting combination that we will discuss about the metastatic center now very soon, but it's the, the, the study that we should do with the new combination to look to the power, to look to the safety, to look to the translational research. Yeah, thanks, Paolo. I think those are all great points. So I think we're going to move on, and that's actually another nice segue and talk about some of the metastatic data now. 
And I think maybe, uh, Paolo, I'm going to sort of ask you to lead this part of the discussion. Maybe it's best to talk about the relativity data first, because we've just been talking about lag free. And of course, you and I and others were involved, you know, a few years ago now, when we were first looking at this. Um, so it's great to see a positive phase three. And then maybe after that, um, talk about some of the longer term follow up data for, for, for some of our established regimens. So, Paolo, over to you. So you know that uh, uh, four years ago, we have seen the first data about this combination. And what uh, we have seen uh, at the time about its most interesting part was the safety profile, that uh, we had important confirmation in the new adjuvant setting with RODA and the relative. So this is interesting combination and mainly also for the safety profile. At that time, we have seen the data and with interesting data in the patients who previously failed anti-PD-1, now is in first line, um, an interesting study. So I treated more than 150 patients with this combination and this look really interesting. But if I look at the data of relativity, uh, I'm not so excited, I have to say. And I, I will explain uh, um, the reason. As first, this is the first time that I see a clinical trial when we see progression-free survival, but not overall response rate. We don't know if uh, the percentage of complete response, partial response. So it's really strange. Uh, and also, I'd like also to look so the, the biomarker because uh, we have seen only the data from the lag tree expression more than 1%, so the cutoff of 1%. I believe that it's important also to look to higher cutoff to look to the co-expression PDL1 and LAC3, because I'm sure from the data, and uh, some of you knows, because we, you participated to the O20 trial, that uh, in the LAC3 positive, uh, uh, we have seen a better response. Having said that, uh, uh, why I, uh, I'm so surprised about uh, this, uh, this data? I'm not so excited, because uh, if you look at the control arc, the performance of nivolumab is not like the performance uh, of Pembrey Nevo in the same setting. If it's true, like Jason uh, Luke uh, discussed, that uh, the assessment was different, was centralized in the relativity, was uh, based on investigator assessment in Checkmate 067. If you look at the duration of uh, the treatment, the median duration of treatment, the control arm is uh, 4.9 months. You know that with Nevo and Pembrey, we have seen a median duration in, uh, in, in the arm of the treatment of about 11 months. So uh, the, the control arm performed not so well. I cannot say the why, because if you look at the patient's characteristic, uh, I don't see a characteristic that uh, uh, was really worse than other. And also if you look at the M1C and this 40% is lower than the classical 60% that we have seen in clinical trial. Maybe the patients treated uh, Previously, we've done Ajuan, maybe some, but really, I don't know. But with an acceleration of 0.75, looking to progression-free survival, uh, I don't know if uh, this acceleration will be translated in an overall survival benefit. So I'm strongly convinced that this is a very nice combination. The data that Rhoda presented is confirmed that it's a powerful uh, combination. Uh, I'm not sure that this combination will replace nivolumab on pembrolizumab monotherapy. We need a biomarker. We need to know which is uh, the best patients for these combinations because EP-Nivo, from my point of view, remain the first choice for the patients with elevated LDH, high tumor burden, brain mate, and mucosal melanoma. Having said that, we had an important confirmation from the Checkmate 067 about the power of the EP-NIVO. Now we have uh, 6.5 years of survival. So listen, listen, Paolo, I'm going to stop there for a bit of discussion about um, relapse okay. because, um, you know, that you made some excellent points there. Um, I, I'm not privy to any insider knowledge, but I presume that the regulator accepted that statistical trial design without response rate. But I agree with you there. We, we you know, we want to see the response rate. And it, you know, it kind of gives you confidence in the PFS if you see the response rate. So I think that's one, one point. I want to ask you about safety, though, Paolo, before I open it uh, um, up with, um, um, with the others. So you alluded to that, but could you be more specific? Well, I'm going to be more specific now anyway. So, I mean, in the, in the trial, I think there was quite careful monitoring for myocarditis. 
And um, I think, Rhoda, in your slides as well at ASCO, you had one bullet point, you know, that myocarditis wasn't much of an issue. So, you know, in well-conducted clinical trials, you know, which are carefully monitored, you know, where you can mandate troponin testing and all this sort of stuff, I think we can be pretty confident about safety. But let's say there is a regulatory approval for the sake of discussion. Fixed dose combination, okay, it's out there. Are we going to kind of be as confident about the safety monitoring? I mean, myocarditis is a side effect, I think, that frightens me, certainly, and I think frightens all of us. So, so what do you think about that, Paolo? So about the safety, you know, we have an ongoing still though 20. And the reason, because there was a lot of attention to the cardiac toxicity was from the phase one with the single agent, with the relatlimab single agent, because there were... Uh, some uh, uh, side effects that then were translated in the combination in the 20 with uh, uh, higher attention to this kind of side effect to look to the troponin and you know very well because you also participated in this trial. But now if we consider the O20, the different court, we have uh, more than 1,000 patients treated with this combination and uh, it's clear that looking at the safety profile, it's a little bit more than the single, the single agent with the nivolumab. So uh, we should look more at the data from the 20. We have also the court with uh, the flat dosage uh, with both the relatlimab and nivolumab, even with the higher dosage. And uh, I believe that uh, the safety profile, the toxicity that we've seen in the uh, relativity study that were presented at ASCO, it's consistent that with, with the data that we have seen in the O20 study. Okay, thanks, Paolo. Um, uh, Anna and Rhoda, can I move to you now? What do you think about the uh, relativity study? What's your uh, gut feelings when you first see those data? So from my perspective, I have kind of a very different feeling than, than Paolo. I, I think this data is, is a little early, right? 12 months following. But, but I think very encouraging. And I could envision that, you know, again, skipping many steps ahead, if this re does achieve regulatory approval, I would envision that this regimen could potentially replace single-agent NEVO. So I'm not sure that single-agent NEVO in the metastatic setting will have much of a role. I think this combination with its favorable safety profile could replace that. But I completely and, agree and, and with very, Paolo. Very, very quick. Uh, very quickly, and by dint, single agent Pembro, single agent Nevo, and single agent Pembro. Yes, correct. Sorry, single agent eighty ones is what I should say. But I agree with with Paolo that Ipi Nevo is still your go to in people with elevated LDH, symptomatic disease, brain mets, right? So uh, nobody's going to replace that, I think. But in the people that you are in your clinic deciding, boy, I think this patient needs a single agent PD-1, I think it would be very easy to say, okay, instead of single agent PD-1, I feel com confident with this combination. Regarding the myocarditis, in, in my experience, um, you know, I, I, you can see myocarditis from single agent PD-1, right? To me, I, I didn't see any bigger signals except that I had to check troponins. And to me, that was more of a hindrance than a benefit, at least with the troponin assays in my hospital. Uh, it was, a, it was a, an issue. Um, so to, to me, I, I did not appreciate any crazy safety signals. Um, what I thought was interesting is that we had a lot of people with, uh, not a lot, a few people when they were having toxicities, they were having adrenal insufficiency. That was a, a toxicity that we saw over and over in the adjuvant phase of the protocol, but it really wasn't any kind of myocarditis or cardiac toxicity. Okay, thank you very much. So Anna, I'm going to ask you about relativity now, and then we'll go back to Paolo for some discussion of the, the, the longer term follow-up from uh, Checkmate 67, and then perhaps we can come back a little bit to, to Ipinevo and how this all fits together. Anna, relativity. Uh I cannot add too much. I agree with the comments of both of uh, with uh, Paolo and with uh, Roda. Uh, yes, it surprised to me also that they only presented the PFS uh, data and no data on objective response rate or overall survival. And I hope that this is going to be presented, you know, in the in in, in the near future. I agree that the safety profile is. Uh, in my opinion, excellent. You know, I participated in the in the phase three. This is my only uh, experience, and we cannot make a difference between the nivo versus if the patients were in the nivo rela. 
is 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 true that the the way the study has been conducted with this first part kind of phase two and then recruitment stop for a period of time and then again so mm, may have influenced how the data have been presented mm, I, I don't know, but I agree with Rhoda that maybe with a longer follow-up and in the future that may uh, be uh, an alternative to anti-PD-1 monotherapy. And with regards to uh, you know, comparisons with Ipinibo, I think the only uh, thing that, in the only situation now that I would prefer uh, Ipinibo probably is in brain meds because for Ipinibo we have a study showing the activity of epinibo in brain meds, at least two studies. We don't have this data for niborella. And the other situation, high LDH, uh, N1CMD, you know, these are opinion-based. This is a speculation. I think this is an investigator or expert opinion, but, you know, probably would favor, you know, with data, more evidence, epinibo on the, uh, on the brain metastasis uh, situation. And then let's give more, uh, you know, a longer follow-up, more more data to be shown from this uh, study. Thanks, Anna. Actually, I'm going to ask another cheeky question before we go uh, to talk about long-term follow-up of Checkmate 67. So if you were uh, reviewing the data um, for the relativity study um, for, say, New England Journal of Medicine, would you accept or reject it? I, I think I would accept it because it's the first one I hope I'm not uh, confused, that is comparing a combination against an um, uh, uh, one monotherapy. That's clear. Paolo, Rhoda? Except. Paolo? Data are data. Oh, very diplomatic. Okay, <laughs> very good. Right then, we've talked a bit about Ipinevo. Paolo, so over to you. Long-term follow-up of Checkmate 67. Uh, you know, is that still standard of care for most patients? And, and maybe a word about Columbus long-term follow-up as well, if we've got a bit of time. Yeah. So two important confirmation, the Checkmate 067 and the Columbus, as you said. So the Columbus, uh, uh, if you look at the combination of encorafenib, benimetinib, and if you look at the five years overall survival data are consistent with uh, all the other two combinations, and there is the confirmation that encorafenib is the best BRAF inhibitor with the data now at five years. Paolo, is it the best combination, do you think, or not? Uh, I cannot say this for the efficacy. Looking at the safety profile, uh, you know, the parexia and photosensitivity is something that can affect the quality of life and uh, probably is better tolerated. So this is my personal opinion, of course. And uh, the data showed that looking at the, the, the percentage of Gritrium 4 and discontinuation rate uh, are similar, but this is my personal feeling. Uh, Checkmate 067, now we have the data 6.5 years that uh, confirm what we have seen previously, but we have a, an additional interesting data. Yes, it's just a retrospective analysis, but this is the melanoma specific survival. Uh, 56% at 6.5 years. So it's uh, an incredible result, I have to say. Even with the median overall survival, uh, the highest never seen in the field of metastatic melanoma, 72 months. So uh, uh, what we want more from uh, the Checkmate 067 now after this data? I believe that uh, after this, we can uh, uh, clearly say that TPNIVO is an important treatment, but even the Evolva monotherapy performed very well. So, and this probably is another important message. Anti-PD-1 monotherapy, it's an important treatment for, uh, for our patients, for metastatic patients. And this is something that is important for uh, the country where EPNIVO is not reimbursed yet, like Italy, for instance. Yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, I think the reimbursement point is really an important point for patients and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, Anna and Rhoda, what do you think about the uh, Checkmate 67, 6.5-year uh, uh, follow-up? Uh, anything different from Paolo? No, I mean, it confirms what we already know. This is a superior regimen, but in terms of, and, and basically it looks like it's curing potentially 50% of, of patients. 
So I, I think in terms of how to improve on that is finding regimens that have the same efficacy but with a lot less toxicity. We all know Ipinevo is super toxic. Uh, it can be super toxic. Um, so that's the way we go forward. But yeah, ag agreed. Ten years ago, there was no regimen that improved overall survival. And now we have this data, which is potentially curing half of our pa metastatic patients. Thank you. Anna? I don't have much to add. You know, it's just it's, it's consisting on data that keep consisting uh, a long time. And uh, regarding to the data of Columbus, I think this combination is similar in terms of efficacy to the other two combinations that we have available. And they have a slightly different uh, safety profiles. And uh, that depends on the if you are used to use one combination more than the other, also uh, regulatory issues. So, but I think the three combinations, you know, the data are quite consistent. So not much different. Thanks, Anna. I mean, and I just made the point before to, we move on that, that, you know, as Paola said, to show melanoma specific survival, you know, how about that? Considering where we were sort of 10 or 15 years ago, it's a big deal, I think. Uh, okay, so the last segment's going to be about the um, anti-PD-1 refractory space. Very, very important, I think, you know, arguably biggest unmet need at, at the moment in the disease. We've talked around it a little bit already, but we've got some data um, shown uh, recently, Anna, um, at ASCO. And I guess... Uh, the, the, a couple of things, uh, at least in the oral session. One, one was the LEAP data, and I think lots of interesting question and discussions there. And some of that comes bit, back a little bit to the kind of anti-PD-1, you know, re-challenge thing, if you see what I mean. You know, are we really seeing something different there? Is Lenva doing anything? Is the biology of that drug important or not? I mean, there's all sorts of questions. And then the lipolucyl data was the other one perhaps to think about. So, Anna, over to you. So as you have said, you know, uh, patients who are, uh, have progressed on anti-PD-1 in the metastatic setting or in the adjuvant setting, I think this is a real big problem. You know, I feel that it is a big problem, one of the uh, distinct questions that, or patients that you have in clinic. And I think it's very difficult. I'm sure all of you are participating in clinical trials. And I always say that all these clinical trials, they don't compete among them because they have different inclusion criteria and, and different uh, definitions to include patients. And we need um, more of these patients. And I think it's very interesting and nice that the, the, the data from, um, you know, the, the, the TILS uh, have been published or presented in Congress, also the data of this um, PEMBRO low-dose EP have been published and also the LIV4 have been uh, shown also in Congress because there are many uh, arms within clinical trials and trials that they have not been made public uh, because you know they have been uh, uh, closed because of futility, because of no activity. So my main uh, message is that it's a very difficult uh, group of patients uh, to treat that now we have many patients who have progressed on adjuvant uh, anti-PD-1, and many times they have a small volume disease and they are in an excellent general condition and there is no standard of care, I would say in my opinion, what to do in this situation. And that all these trials are very heterogeneous among them. Uh, they have different number of patients included. They are single arms. Uh, the definition or the order of previous lines are, are different among, among them. For example, LIV4. I think LIV4 is the one with the highest number of patients that have been included in this setting. Uh, the response rate is uh, 21% uh, percent, um, uh, approximately. Very well defined, at least within the trial, you know, uh, the type of patient that would be uh, included, but also uh, in terms of uh, progression to anti-PD-1, because all the progression and all the responses were checked by an independent uh, committee, but the population of patients similar to the TILS trial, they, are, they have been heavily pretreated and they have received uh, uh, many lines. Uh, one of the messages also from the trial, you know, the duration of the of the response is less than a year. So I don't think that we know what is uh, what can we expect in this population in, in patients who are resistant or they are refractory to anti-PD-1, which is the duration that we can expect in this in these patients. And what I envision is that maybe in the future we may we may have different 
treatment is, is strategies for these patients because in the PEMBRO EP, they were treated most of them immediately after anti-PD-1 progression. In the LIB4, 60% uh, of the patients have received two or more lines, something similar to what happened in the, in the TILS uh, trials. The response uh, rate in the TILS trials is higher, but it's a special treatment. We have to agree that it's a special treatment. It's not for all patients. And 36% of response rate is high, but I have worked at my numbers. It's approximately 55-60% of the patients of these responders that a response lasts for more than a year, while only a 40% of 38% of the patients in the uh, lead for trials, their response lasts more than uh, a year. So that tells me, you know, that these patients are difficult. And I will say my, my question, which response rate do we have to expect in this population of patients? 20, 30% when in first line we are, give, we are getting with anti-PD-1 monotherapy 30 to 40%. Uh, what is uh, you know? I have. I think we have many questions. We need a randomized uh, in this setting. Thanks, Anna. So that's great. I'm going to ask you about. Um, you know, I got asked this stuff. I presented the data actually um, for for Life Belusa about regulatory approval. Maybe you just answered it when you said you need a randomized trial. I mean, are those data strong enough for regulatory approval either in the US? Uh, or in Europe, uh, or not. And once you've answered that, I'm going to open to uh, Paolo and Rhoda for their thoughts on this. Well, I have always said, even for the LIV4 study, that probably in the European context, in this setting, we may need a, a randomized trial. And Anna, what's the control arm? You just said there's no standard of care. Well, is, it, is it cytotoxic chemo? No, well, depends. I think it should be left uh, uh, to, to the investigators to choose because maybe some patients come straight from anti-PD-1 progression. And then we know from the uh, EP tilsotolimod that response rate following anti-PD-1 is 8% in the context of an international randomized trial. So that gives us an idea how difficult uh, to treat our, these patients or combination anti-PD-1 plus anti-CTLA-4, but may, what has happened to the patients who have already received anti, uh, I think probably the control arm uh, will need to be, will depend on the design of the trial, at which point you include the patients, just immediately after the uh, anti-PD-1 or after several lines, because that happens in real clinical practice. We, I have many patients who have received many lines of, of, of treatment. And maybe, uh, you know, if we leave it to the choice of the investigator, uh, could be anti-PD-1, the combination of anti-PD-1 plus anti-CTLA-4, even cytotoxic uh, chemotherapy, or, um, you know, the, usually they are combinations. So the, uh, one of the drugs that they combine with the anti-PD-1. So I think this is open and it's going to depend on the design of the trial at the time point where the patients are uh, included. Okay, thanks, Anna. Listen, we've only got about five minutes left. So, Paolo and Rhoda, two or three minutes each for your thoughts. And I, I, I'm anxious to hear what you think as well about regulatory approval, uh, standard therapy, control arms, need for randomized data. Rhoda, do you want to go first? Maybe a sort of US type perspective. Well, I, I mean, I, I like the LEAP004 data. I think it's great um, focusing on PD-1 refractory patients. I love that that trial had 55% of patients with elevated LDH, which really represents the, the patients that we, we need the best therapies for. Uh, as, as Anna pointed out, you know, you're, you're not necessarily having a, a tail of the curve, right? It, it can work for a period of time. It stops working. It's not necessarily as durable as we've seen with the, the TIL data, which seems to have deepened responses every time they go back and look at the data, which we would expect from a traditional immunotherapy regimen. What I'll say about the, the TIL data is, agreed, it looks great, but, but as Anna said, this is a select patient population. Uh, I don't think that this is going to be, you know, if it is regulatorily approved, I don't think that will be the majority of patients who will go on to get TIL. I mean, at least in our institution, you know, it, it's, um, this, this is a, a very selected group of patients that go on to get this treatment. 
And I think the data looks very good because these patients fit that very strict criteria. In actuality, I don't know how, how, how effective this regimen will be. In terms of regulatory approval, I think the TIL data is closer in the U.S. Um, than, than, you know, perhaps the, 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 the lenvatinib data. I think the lenvatinib needs a randomized trial. I think that's going to be a little harder to do with the TIL data. And based on that very robust uh, overall response rate and the, you know, persisting duration of response in treated patients, I actually think it will get regulatory approval in the U.S. at least. Thank you. Paolo, uh, last couple of three minutes for you. No, yeah, so uh, I will try to be really short. The first, uh, second line in metastatic melanoma, it's uh, now the field where we need uh, uh, to do something. So it's uh, a stronger need for, for this group of patients. And uh, looking at the data, interesting, I agree that it's on a small cohort of patients, but of course we need to some signal to go in uh, a better uh, a trial, a larger trial. Um, it's interesting the data about the LIPO4 in the, the patients who failed, uh, anti-stelophilin DPD-1, yes, it's just 30 patients, but looks interesting. And also the data about uh, the TIL and probably James, I believe that we should look, this was a question that someone asked you for the pegylated IL-2. So now we have a lot of pegylated IL-2, we have a clinical trial, probably this is uh, the right uh, compound to combine uh, with uh, the TIL. So we'll see. Uh, and about the regulatory issue, I believe that in Europe with this data, we cannot get the approval and we need a randomized trial. And I agree with Anna at the moment with no standard of care, the best investigator choice should be the, the control arm for a trial in the second line. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I suppose one minor notice that uh, we're no longer part of Europe anymore, at least from that perspective. So uh, I don't know what our regulatory situation is going to be in the next little while, but uh, I guess we'll find out. Okay, so listen, everybody, that was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you're all smiling. I think we had a great discussion. We could have talked for much longer, I think, as well. So thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you for joining us. I hope everyone's found that informative and uh, interesting. And we will end there. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this post-ASCO skin cancer session. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.